hell's going on? You are witnessing a front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. Acts like he's never seen a kiss before. Uh, Gordon? Take another look, Sonny. It's going to happen again. Hello, fine friends, and welcome to a damn fine podcast, the show that is reviewing, and in a few short weeks, seeing for the first time, the television show Twin Peaks. I'm Tom Merritt. I'm Ron Richards. And uh, man, I, I, you know, I have to say the, uh, the excitement is building. I, I've, I feel like my head is full of owls, Ron. It's, it's really, the, the fact that this is airing mere weeks before season three starts, I still cannot believe it. The excitement is and, too much. And okay. as we get to the end of this season two, this, these episodes get better and better. Yeah. And of course, our guests are amazing too. Joining us today to discuss this episode is Joseph Scrimshaw, comedian and host of The Head Cannon on Anchor. Not the, just Head Cannon on Anchor. <laughs> and the Obsessed podcast and co-host of the Force Center podcast. How's it going, Joseph? Oh, I'm very, very happy to be here and talking about the Twin Peaks. Yes, all, <laughs> both of them. Both peaks. All the Twin Peaks. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny because, I, I jo- Joseph, I've admired your work and your various appearances on Star Wars Minute. That's where I first discovered you and, uh, and then listened to your other stuff online. But I was delighted as we were talking to find out that you were such a big Twin Peaks fan. Oh yeah, really uh, a huge, huge fan. Big uh, impact on my life, I think, and my, my psyche. Wow. Uh, when did, did you first encounter Twin Peaks? Was it the, the first airing or did you catch up with it later? Uh, I caught up with it almost the first airing. So, you know, they broadcast the first season and then when the second season was going to come on, they replayed the first season. So it lined up with the uh, beginning of the second season. And so I watched it then, uh, that second airing of the first season. So oh. back in the early 90s. Um, oh, I, didn't, I don't even remember them doing that. I, I think you're the first person who did, who had that particular scenario. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of the, of uh, our guests. Anyway. I'm, no, of, of anyone in the world. You're the first person who won. <laughs> no, of the folks no, that we've had on. My brother did it too. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think it was my true first introdu- introduction to anything that was made by an auteur. Uh, anything that was not sort of factory produced or studio produced on some level. So I think not only the actual art of what Twin Peaks was and all the themes and ideas and mythology, but just that feeling of this is largely, especially at the beginning, the the viewpoint of this strange man named David Lynch with uh, some strangeness from Mark Frost, but a lot David Lynch, and just feeling like, oh, you, you can have a, a perspective of the world that is strange and unique to you, but also still speaks to other people. And as like a weird artsy kid who didn't have a lot of weird artsy friends, that in itself was just very, very powerful to me. And and I think also the the fact that it was such a I don't want to say flash in the pan but just like a, a momentary glimpse of brilliance yeah. that I, I think that it was just enough for as somebody you know like I feel we're all similarly aged and we we're all watching it you know at a time where we were influenced in our media consumption and I really think that it, Twin Peaks launched a thousand ships of content creators because we we're like hey man if they got this on TV for eighteen months imagine what <laughs> I could do you know like right I think it definitely showed that anything could happen right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I was even kind of connecting to it as necessarily, like I was artsy, but I don't think when I saw Twin Peaks, I was like, yes, I shall make something like Twin Peaks. I think it was even like, uh, almost like just uh, the rhythms of it. Just like 
that, hey, the world is there and we all recognize the world as it is, but also it's a little bit off-center for some of us. And it spoke to me in like a deep level that I couldn't even put to words at the time. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked directly about that feeling that I know a lot of us have had watching Twin Peaks that we were one of the few people who got the joke or or, or, yeah. or understood the point even when it wasn't a joke. There was even, – even though there's millions of people watching Twin Peaks who do, you always felt like you were like, oh, I, I get you, I, you know, in a way that television at the time never, never did. Yeah, and I mean I had geeky friends. I had friends who liked Star Wars and they liked superheroes and like they were maybe a little bit on board for Star Trek that was a little too geeky to them. But Twin Peaks was just like, no, sorry, I can't follow you down that path, you weirdo. Even <laughs> my geek friends were like, this is too far. So I think that was a part of the power that it, I felt very alone in it and really wanted to find other people who could like, uh, you know, hear the music and see the visions like, like Cooper did. I was like, can't, can any of you else hear this music <laughs> but it's amazing that kind of special feeling i mean I, I know i watched it it was you know towards the the latter half of middle school and it was that time where i was discovering things like monty python and you know really going deep in star wars because like the thrawn books had just started at that point <laughs> yeah right? you know and and like and like the it really laid the groundwork for a lot of the fandom that has now later become like my career you know like you know by you know it, it gave it, you know it, it's that that loneliness of being one of the only people in your class who's into something, but seeing that as a badge of honor and not as a point of alienation that I think really, yeah. really led me to embrace other weird shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I think just Cooper himself was also powerful. And I think I was cognizant of like, wow, an actual decent male role model of, you know, and I think especially at that time, there was a lot of just like, you know, this steroided up toughest guy ever, somebody who can go to a jungle and kill everybody. And that's who I was supposed to be. And like, right, uh, right. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be the guy who says, you know, I very much want to make love to a beautiful woman for whom I have genuine affection. I was like, yes, that's me. <laughs> well, and that's one of Lynch's superpowers is being able to create characters that are good, like Cooper, without being shallow. He's, yeah. he's, he's a, a, a force for righteousness, but not in a way that's, that's, you know, insipid. And, and I feel, and I feel like th these observations are great for this particular episode. Cause this, yeah. you know, cause we've been leading up to it, but I really feel like this is the episode where the, the Phoenix that is special agent Dale Cooper spreads its wings. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before we dive right into the episode, I, one last question for you, Joseph, when you mentioned that it had impacts on your life for me, that I feel of things like, you know, I, I take my coffee black as midnight on a moonless night i have a deep and abiding love of cherry pie what what are those sorts of things for you uh yeah so i i, I felt very stunted while the television show was on and wanted to find ways to express it and then uh when fire walk with me came out that's where it kind of all broke up open for me i literally started smoking because of that movie <laughs> um and i decided i decided that i did want to get my degree uh in visual art and i uh -huh. started painting things. I painted a picture of David Lynch. I used a lot of Black Lodge imagery uh, and and also tried to say like, okay, I, I like echoing these images, but what are other things that just, I just feel this, so I'm just going to draw this. So that's, it was after Firewalk with me where I took that next step of, I shouldn't just mimic this because I love it. I should try to use the uh, artistic inspiration to take a step into into myself. So Artistic inspiration and smoking. <laughs> That's what it's, I got. It's interesting because we're, we're going to be talking about Firewalk with me uh, right before season three starts. But it's funny cool. how like how, you know, the show wrapped up and then Firewalk with me was that little thing towards the end. And really, that's what birthed my love of Harry Dean Stanton. 
And so as I look back on Twin Peaks, I'm really relishing Harry Dean Stanton as an actor, and I'm so excited he's going to be back in season three. So Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> Team Carl Rod, for sure. I'm glad he's there. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move into episode 19 of season two, uh, titled by the Germans Variations on Relations. It is actual title episode 26, because, of course, it is the 27th episode of the series. Ron, <laughs> what do you make? Uh, what, what have you got for us so, detail wise? So going into the history books here, this aired on April 11th, 1991. So this is a part of uh, Twin Peaks return to ABC on Thursday nights. Uh, this is the second to last uh, airing. Uh, in this April batch, and then we go on another hiatus. So uh, if, we, if we turn back the clock to April 1991, the three of us are sitting in front of our TVs trying to enjoy it while it lasts. Um, and, of and of course, to celebrate that, uh, this is uh, episode was written by Mark Frost and Harley Payton, and this is notable because this is the first episode Mark Frost returned with a writing credit since the episode where Leland died. So, wow. so it's oh, been wow. a long break for Mark Frost. We haven't seen him for, in a while. I forget what episode number. I think that might have been. Oh, geez, I forget what number episode number that was. But uh, I think it was Arbitrary Law was the episode. So, um, yeah. So it goes back. I think to episode nine. It's been a, that's how long of a break. Yep, that's correct. So uh, good to see Mark Frost back. It was directed by Jonathan Sanger, who uh, you know fans of David Lynch might recognize that name as a uh, producer, particularly of The Elephant Man. He helped David Lynch make The Elephant Man and. And he comes here to take his hand at directing. He didn't do much directing, uh, but he's a relatively newcomer to directing. And this is kind of like a one shot kind of, you know, he helped Lynch out previously. So Lynch gave him a shot here, I guess. Uh, that's completely conjecture. I have no idea. Uh, John, <laughs> John Thorne probably knows the real story behind that. Tom. Right. <laughs> but um, and while last episode, uh, when we were ret we returned to this Thursday time slot, it was the ratings were doing well. Uh, but now the ratings have dipped down below 8 million again. This episode got 7.9 million viewers uh, coming in dead last in uh, the ratings for that night. Uh, and I can pull up right now the ratings. The number one show in its time slot, no surprise, Cheers, with 31.3 million people watching. <laughs> followed, wow. followed by The Antagonists on CBS with 13.9 million people watching. Followed by Beverly Hills 90210 on Fox with 11.3 million Beverly Hills' star is just rising at this point, so it's, it's, it's early in the game there. And then Twin Peaks came in last at 7.9, and still notable, the 9.30 time slot was held by Seinfeld with 23.3 million people uh, with that lead-in. And I thought, we talked about this last week, that Seinfeld, you know, Seinfeld had premiered in April of 91, and it was, you know, benefited from having Cheers as a lead-in for its first season. So I wanted to go see, you know, what did ABC do for a lead-in for uh, Twin Peaks? What was on at eight o'clock on Thursday, April eleventh? Uh, do you guys, do you guys remember what was on ABC at eight o'clock on on Thursdays? No. ABC had given up at this point. It feels like I don't remember anything that was on ABC in ninety-one. Well, you, you won't be surprised to hear that they tried to keep keep with the mystery theme. And at eight o'clock on ABC on Thursday, April eleventh, is Father Dowling Mysteries. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and and not only Perfect. is it not only is it Father Dowling Mysteries, but it's a rerun of Father Dowling Mysteries. It's oh, not even a wow. new episode. So. Yeah. So. ABC just threw in the towel. And they weren't really promoting Twin Peaks. They can't have for it no. to be getting as good as it is. And lose two million from week to week. That's crazy. I I'm pretty sure that the the they would have canceled it 
at the in the February point when the ratings just bottomed out and just the fact that it had gotten so much hype earlier in the year and that mm-hmm. whatever and again all speculation again John Thorne of Wrapped in Plastic probably knows the truth behind this but I gotta imagine that a plea was made to like just let us finish we've got this plan let us finish yeah. it out and you get look the you've that, only got yeah. reruns of Father Dowling mysteries to fill the <laughs> schedule anyway you might as well run our episodes <laughs> exactly so uh, so there it is there's your little time capsule to 1991 uh, what was going on <laughs> All right, well, let's Nothing get right but in. Nothing tragedy. Nothing but tragedy. <laughs> Sad, sadly true. And the uh, the tragedy will continue in a fictional form now as we <laughs> enter Owl Cave and find Andy, Hawk, Cooper, and Truman uh, back to the cave after inexplicably leaving and realizing <laughs> someone has been there. Uh, Hawk saw the same tracks outside that they saw at the power station. So, of course, they realize Wyndham Earl has been there. And uh, they're looking at this huge petroglyph which we did not get to see last time and cooper says he needs a large-scale rendering of it so of course he calls on andy uh to do that and wants to get major briggs uh, to meet them back at the sheriff's station so joseph what do you make of the owl cave and all the mythology that we're getting introduced this late in the season two Oh, I love the mythology. I think that was the number one thing I was there for at that point. Uh, I had I, I'm easier on second two on season two than some people are. Um, as soon as Laura Palmer's uh, mystery was resolved, I felt like oh, the show is about the mystery of the lodges, and Laura was our introduction to this story. So for me, I was thrilled to see Owl Cave because I, I really felt at that point that's what the show is about. Um, in, in my adult life, I was thrilled when I realized when I moved to Los Angeles a few years ago and realized that I lived within walking distance to actual Owl Cave where they shot it. It's underneath the Hollywood sign, right? Yeah, it's a, in Bronson Canyon. And yeah. I can walk there in like 15 minutes from where I live in Hollywood. And that's, that just blows my mind. You know, Twin Peaks <laughs> felt so magical and so far away. And like, I can walk to Owl Cave? And yeah. is, the, is the petroglyph still there? No, neither no. is the Batmobile. Yeah, it was also used for the Batmobile entrance. Yeah, I did read that. Yeah, um, that's too funny. I think also, uh, Joseph, you are our first uh, guest to be a defender of season two. So that's fascinating. Oh, yeah, that seems to be my lot in life. I defend the prequels on in Star Wars. Uh, I think I just have a perspective of when there's something that I love totally that makes sense to me uh in so many ways just like aesthetically and uh just kind of the rhythm of it that i'm good at looking for well what are the good parts how can we look at the bad parts and reinterpret them to be enjoyable to ourselves i want to say that's probably a better way to look at things but then i watched the prequels <laughs> and i watched i lived through james and evelyn marsh as the tom and, and I, I, I have a hard time going along with it <laughs> fair I, enough I mean, not to get too far into the Star Wars uh, side of this conversation, but I definitely do that. I still can't defend a lot about the prequels, but I definitely look at it going, well, if we just edited out this scene or if we just skipped that or if we rephrased that, uh, you've you've got a really good story buried in there. So it's it's, I, it's the it's the it's the uh, analogy of the, the the pig flying through the air and Homer going, it's still good, it's still good. <laughs> no, no, we're gonna have some '90s disagreement there, my friend. No, I think uh, I think with both the prequels and season two, because there are things that are uh, really demonstrably, agreeably not good, that we tend to just zero in on those, and I think they can blind us to the parts that are good. And I think the yeah. same the same can be said here for Twin Peaks season two, and, and that we definitely do. Everyone is in agreement that we definitely had a a big valley where they were trying to figure out what to do after Lor- after Leland died. 
and trying to figure out what to do with all the characters and the storylines. And it is definitely like a get their groove back kind of scenario. And again, like I said earlier, this is like the Phoenix rising from the ashes because, you know, here in the cave, we get Cooper back in the FBI, you know, the bright yellow FBI letter jacket in the cave. And, <laughs> and, you know, like it's a, I really get a sense that, and, you know, even later in the episode, that this feels like old Cooper again, um, yeah. which is great. Well, and and I agree that the what ca- what is captivating for me about Twin Peaks its entire run is the mythology and that widening of the mythology from Bob to Bob and Mike to the lodges. Uh, if you kind of skip over some of those rougher parts of season two, is still really compelling, uh, and and we get a big download on that mythology in the second scene of this episode where Wyndham Earl is smoking a pipe. And telling a tale about the White Lodge and how wonderful it was and Rain Sweet Nectar, he finds it ghastly. Uh, <laughs> you see Leo listening there. Uh, and then we sort of get gladdered, uh, Ron, when it re- is revealed that there's a guy in a bandana just kind of sitting there listening too. And Earl is telling him the story about the power of the Black Lodge. Uh, of course, the guy just was wants some beer and a party that he was promised. But we as listeners are really enjoying hearing all this lodge mythology. Uh, and then you see that the petroglyph is sketched on his computer or maybe it's a photo on his computer. It, but I remember being really impressed that it was on a computer back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So interesting. I want to. I want to. I was impressed in this episode by the monitor because I thought it was maybe one of those like magnetic resonance imaging or something like like some sort of like it looked like one of those like they take a pic- picture of things on, on the ocean floor. That's kind just of, yeah. a CRT. That's, yeah, I know. Just CRT. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, but I want to talk about the 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 bandana guy or the or the the either biker or metalhead or as he's credited on IMDb, the heavy metal youth. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I like uh, that too. <laughs> and uh, this heavy metal youth is played by none other than Ted Raimi, uh, brother of Sam, the director Sam yeah. Raimi. Yeah. Uh, so I and I, I like. And he ha- does feel like a character out of one's one of Sam Raimi's movies too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I also love how they need to express that he's a metalhead in 1990 or 1991, so they put him in a leather leather vest with studs and one little fake tattoo on the arm. And you think about today with everybody with complete sleeves and everything like that, that just one tattoo is enough to tell us, oh, that's a bad dude. That's a that's a heavy metal guy. <laughs> He's a heavy metal yeah. youth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, the story of Twin Peaks being sort of uh, timeless and not caught up with the modern age, I love it when something kind of modern intrudes violently on this 50s wooden timeless pastiche and then suddenly you have kind of metal guy, kind of from 88, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it, it, he, looks, he looks like a late 80s MTV Def Leppard metal guy. I mean, it just, yeah. I just think it's funny how tame that looks now, where it just looks it looks like a caricature. Of anything. I mean, and I just have to wonder if Wyndham Earl dressed up in his bad biker costume from a couple episodes ago to recruit this guy or not. But right. just, <laughs> and why didn't we see that scene? I'd like to see Wyndham Earl picking up the metal youth and going, hey, man, I'm throwing a party at a cabin. Let's go. Well, I think well, there's a whole other series, if somebody wanted to do a spinoff someday, of, of Wyndham Earl just going around town in costumes, collecting everything that he has in the cabin because I don't think he brought all those resources to the cabin. I think he went and stole a television, a CRT television. He got some paper mache. He stole from every store in Twin Peaks. Yeah, he stole the beer that he's given to the heavy metal youth too. Yes. For sure. I, how do you guys feel about the exposition of the mythology here? Because I'm of two minds. One is I, I'd rather see some of this 
but it's difficult to depict. So having it told while we're also being shown the story of the heavy metal youth and and the uh, and and the entrapment of him thereof uh, is is okay for me. But how is it for you? I love it. I love his speech in particular because I felt like this is the first speech where Wyndham Earl started to come into focus as a character a little bit more in that classic sort of duality theme that is so evident in Twin Peaks that he is clearly the opposite of Cooper in that he really does legitimately himself just sort of dislike goodness, that he thinks goodness is stupid and pointless and a lie that has been told to him. And you can, he almost seems angry, like he's like he's not only telling us about the Black Lodge, but he's telling it about himself, his perspective that goodness is just a lie. So to me, it has this great depth. And then you pull back and you get this fun contrast of the metal guy who likes to play with ideas of like death, goat horns, yay. Yeah. And here he is confronted with a guy who's like, no, I'm actually trying to open a portal to a demon dimension because I truly believe in actual evil. Yeah. Well, and that's carried through in future scenes too, as we'll see. And the thing is yeah. about the, and the thing is about visualizing it versus telling it. I mean, like I'm always a, a more of a believer of show don't tell. But given where they are with technology and special effects and their budget at this period in time, as we see in this episode, that mm. when they try to show stuff at the Black Lodge, it it doesn't work. So I think the more they lean on telling about it, actually is better because then you look back on things like remember uh, Major Briggs on the the throne in the woods, like that oh, whole right. shot. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like if they made the show now, I think we would see a lot more because they te- could do a lot more technically. But back then, it, it's just was there. It's like Star Wars. They were just limiting a lot of Star Wars comparisons here. Uh, <laughs> they, they were just limited by what they could do and afford. So. We all move on to the Martells, uh, where Pete spends most of the scene paraphrasing poetry about Josie and pondering his chess moves. And then Catherine comes in with the puzzle box and they get in a little argument about getting Pete to help him. Pete admits that he uh, he saw one of these kinds of things in Guam uh, <laughs> when he was there with the Doolittle twins and, and sort of upsets Catherine when he tells him tells her it could take years to open. I love again that we're playing. You know, like we the we didn't anticipate Pete being the chess master, and now he sees the box and knows exactly what it is. Like I like the idea. You thought Pete is this little you know local fisherman, but he's this worldly dude who knows a lot of stuff. Like it continues the the wonderfulness of Pete Martell. Yeah, and I, I like that scene for uh, again just like a little tiny hint of that duality theme where we're being reminded that he is a chess expert. He's noodling around there with the chest, and then he can't come up with the rhyme bloom which is like a really subtle but funny bit of comedy that it takes yeah. him that long to get to. What should flowers do? Bloom, you idiot. Bloom. Yeah. We're shouting. We're all of us shouting at Pete. Yeah. And this is, by the way, our second reference to being in Guam. Remember, uh, right. remember what's his face? The, uh, the, the Norma's mother's husband. What was it? Ernie. Ernie talked Ernie. to him. He, Ernie. He, got a, he got a sweating problem when he was in Guam. I wonder so. if Pete and Ernie served together yeah, maybe, there. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Although I guess uh, Pete was saying he went to Guam on vacation, not yeah. not in the uh, war. With the Doolittle twins. <laughs> on to the diner uh, where Bobby is in a very uh, 80s, 90s flannel uh, trying to talk to Shelly about entering the Miss Twin Peaks contest and also trying to convince her that he's in charge. <laughs> uh, this is just a little vignette to remind us where Bobby and Shelly's relationship is, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lana is also there telling Mayor Milford that she wants to win 
the contest. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It takes Mayor Milford a, a couple of beats uh, to understand that. Uh, and he objects that it wouldn't be right. But of course, Lana has Lana powers. Uh, and th- <laughs> this is all just reminding us like this Min- Miss Twin Peaks contest is coming up. We know Wyndham Earl has plans for it. And here are all the p- pieces in place getting ready to participate. And and we and unfortunately, Bobby has a horrible haircut. Um, he when the show started, he had that great '90s kind of long hair ish kind of thing, and now we just see the passage of time. But uh, mm. I just thought the <laughs> I, I thought the the mirroring of Shelley and Leo's relationship merging in her and Bobby's relationship was a little yeah. unsettling for me to watch. Actually, Bobby's yeah. in charge. Yeah, yeah. I, my wife and I just rewatched the whole series. Just finished uh, like a couple days ago, and my wife was really bothered by this scene, which is yeah. totally understandable because it is. It's it's frightening to see like Bobby fumbling towards what it means to be masculine and wandering into just being Leo, which obviously yeah. gets turned around very quickly here. But it is disturbing when he grabs her arm, like, and she looks Ugh. at him. That's the moment. Oh, it's I was like, so oh, Leo, right? Yeah. 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 Um, the the buildup of the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. You know, like at first, like they, they see they've seeded this for a while, right? So, like, I like that it, it, it's giving me feeling that you know, of course, I know what's coming because I've watched it. But I mean, it's the sense that whereas you know, five episodes ago they're throwing stuff out there randomly, now it seems like they want to work towards a goal, and this is all part of it. And each episode gets a little more about this pageant, so it's 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 good breadcrumbs. Then yeah. Cooper enters in that FBI jacket that you're talking about, orders some donuts and coffee from Annie, asks her if she would like to go on a nature study with him, <laughs> which should get a laughing reaction, but doesn't. She says, how wonderful. Uh, then he talks about getting a feeling in his toes and stomach, uh, which also doesn't put her off. She just says it's interesting. Bobby begins to tell Shelley to use her beauty to her advantage. Uh, Shelley quotes Earl's poem, and Cooper overhears it and recognizes it. Uh, he keeps the piece that Shelly had because she only has the one torn piece that was hers. Then Annie, of course, brings the coffee and donuts. Cooper is so bothered by recognizing something about that piece that he almost forgets to acknowledge her, uh, but then does uh, and says, yes, I will I will pick you up. And, uh, of course, Shelly looks smug because she knew all along that those two liked each other. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the only thing that struck me odd about this is I don't think Cooper would admit how he was feeling in the, that way. Oh, the, man. The Oh, I'm going to disagree. Star yeah. Wars prequels level disagree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I don't know. I just Always. feel I feel like he he opened up so much in this scene alone. You know, like I know he's telegraphing and he's asking her out, but like to maybe because he's just surprised. I don't know. It just it just seems a little too free for Cooper. Well, that's to me, that's the power of it is that he says pretty explicitly in this episode that like, you know, it's time to unlock his heart. So I think yeah. there is almost a rational level where he is going to allow himself to do this. But what I always liked about this run of episodes is we see all sorts of people fall in love immediately fast. And and so you have this beauty of, in Twin Peaks, people can just be overtaken by by chemistry and the magic of love, but then they immediately pay for it. So it goes Mm -hmm. back to that beautiful idea of like what Truman is saying almost at the beginning of the series of, we, we have things very nice here, they're very special here, it's a magical place, and we pay for it. And I've always interpreted Cooper and Annie's like, super sudden connection and super sudden romance is you get a little bit of good and then you are immediately going to pay for it with absolute horror. Well, oh, yeah. I, I've got retorts to that, but I'm going to wait till later this episode. Well, it's like the effect <laughs> of the good. White Lodge yeah. and the effect of the Black Lodge yeah. mixing. Yeah. 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 All right, we go back to the sheriff station uh, where Cooper admits that he knows the poem from Wyndham Earl uh, because Cooper once read said poem to Caroline. 
which is uh, Cooper's former beau and Earl's former wife. Hawk has retrieved Donna's piece, but Audrey's still in Seattle, so they don't have that. Good continuity there. And uh, Cooper asked Truman <laughs> for Leo's arrest report because he's putting the pieces together. And how great that moment when he says, I'm putting the pieces together, Harry. Does you, that was when I was like, Cooper's back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and some actual detective work. Nothing uh, weird or mystical, just, like, sharp detective. Yep. Yep. Uh, then on to the conference room where Briggs is uh, critiquing Andy's drawing, and Andy realizes he's right. Uh, Cooper needed Briggs' help but can't accurately describe how or why. It was just a feeling about Leo's disappearance, about Wyndham Earl, about the petroglyphs. Cooper thinks they are complementary verses of the same song. Uh, and needs to know about Earl's involvement with Project Blue Books. Now, then we get this really interesting reaction from Briggs, who says he doesn't have clearance to talk about that, but it's it's not access to the information that's the problem for him. It's the moral judgments. Uh, and then Briggs admits that the reason he was able to help Andy with the drawing earlier is he has dreamed of that petroglyph, or at least seen it somewhere. Then suddenly... A Darth Sidious walks into frame behind the map, and then there it turns into stars, and then an owl, and then flames, and then we focus back on the flame part of the petroglyph, and Briggs agrees to help. Hawk comes in with Leo's arrest report, and Cooper can tell that the poem was written by Leo by comparing the handwriting. All right, before we get into The Cloaked Man, I just totally realized what happened, and I didn't realize when I watched it. I'm such an idiot. So last episode, they found this thing, and they found the rod, and Wyndham Earl turned it, and that caused the dust to move, and that's what showed what was been etched, the dust filled, you know, so they could see what was on the cave. Right. That's why Cooper yeah. said that when they were in the cave, he goes, someone's done our job for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just all yeah. clicked in me, and I'm very stupid. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, it just shows that, that years yeah. later, after many viewings, you can still get something new out of it. Yeah, no, I totally, I know, because I always thought that the petroglyph was just there, and we couldn't see it because it was lit, but I realized that the turning of the rod made revealed it, it, revealed yeah. it, yeah, so that makes much more sense. Very cool. Now, can, now, have you also figured out why Darth Sidious walks through the scene? Well, the thing about the cloaked, the cloaked man is that, I don't know if, it, I mean, we all, we all uh, Joseph you mentioned you worked in visual arts. Tom, I know you've got a long you know, history in broadcasting. When I was in high school, we, we, we could take video class, and we had very rudimentary uh, you know, VHS-based video effects <laughs> systems or whatever. But one thing that we could do is we could put someone in front of a blue background and make the blue white and the person black. And it was like the most simple chroma key ever. <laughs> and this is just like, oh, this is what I did in high school in my video class. <laughs> I think that the cloaked man and the space and the reused owl iconography are all a symbol of ABC's messing with Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> and the void and sadness of uh, Lynch's unique and specific iconography to communicate this great mythology. And as, you know, other other people are coming in and going like, ah, oh, yeah, so uh, when, when uh, Cooper and Briggs and people have visions, uh, weird stuff happens, right? Uh, here's some weird. And I, it, yeah. it just it doesn't resonate on uh, that level that I think is what is powerful about Lynch, because to me, no matter how weird Lynch goes, it, he always connects in some way to something deeply human. And these things just kind of feel like, ooh, spooky. What's the deal? Who knows? It's, it, there's not a true sense of, of human mystery to them. Yeah. Well, and ask yourself this. Would this scene be any different if 
we went straight from Briggs musing about the petroglyph to a close-up of the flame glyph yeah. and a little dramatic music, and then back to Briggs having a revelation and saying, fine, I'll help. Like, it it would be just as, as good and less distracting, I think. Yeah, and like, to me, I would have loved just some of the uh, original image and sound that Lynch had started to establish for the otherworldly presence in Twin Peaks, like just like a little flash of strobe and like a little yeah. discordant yeah, music yeah. would have been yeah, great. Totally, totally. And for for me, at least, what I want to do is I want to not watch this in high definition on my wonderful piece of technology. I would like to get an old CRT, <laughs> and I want to get a VHS copy and watch it to see if it's suffering due to the fact that we have superior viewing modes yeah. now. Yeah, I want you know? that 15-inch Zenith color TV. Yeah, exactly. That I watch <laughs> and the, the rabbit ears. I'm gonna, we're going to broadcast yep. this via UHF, and we're going to see Occasional waviness just yeah. comes in. <laughs> and I want to be in a painful chair, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. On to the Great Northern, uh, where Dick still has his broken nose. Another good example of continuity. Uh, can't find Audrey because we know where she is. Uh, and Ben offers to pay the medical expense for Dick's nose because remember, Ben is trying to be a good man now. And of course, Dick pushes it and asks for workman's comp, uh, which then causes Ben to muse to himself that the urge to do bad uh, is sometimes overpowering. And he takes an <laughs> aggressive bite out of his carrot. And I, I, I feel like anytime Dick Tremaine's on the screen, uh, while I like the actor, it's just a big like no. And I and and this is this scene does nothing but introduce oh Dick's back and we're gonna get more of him. Yeah, uh, exactly. And Ben's still trying to be good, but yeah. wow, people like Dick Tremaine sure make it hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's like legitimately funny, but there is something about his scenes that aren't connecting uh, to the rest of the mood of Twin Peaks. Yep. He feels like a leftover character where they like we finished his his story, but they needed somebody to fill in this gap. And so they just threw him in there. Yeah. Yeah. I do love the carrot, though. Always the carrot. I'm delighted yeah, the every time I see the carrot. Uh, back to Earl's cabin, uh, where Earl is in an apron and giving Leo a drink, but the drink is meant for the heavy metal youth, who is now encased <laughs> in some chicken wire, and uh, it looks like some kind of paper mache sculpture is being made. Earl then gets a crossbow out and asks Leo for an arrow, and we finally see Leo resist. Uh, Leo even doesn't believe that the heavy metal youth needs an arrow in the head, uh, but Earl pulls out the shock collar and shocks Leo until he brings him the arrow. And then Earl, and this connects back to what you were saying earlier, tells the the heavy metal youth that he's going to get to find out the great secret of life after death. And I have no doubt that Earl believes that the heavy metal youth is a lucky person right now and then <laughs> shoots him in the head and he gets bloody in the mouth somehow. <laughs> this, this really shocked me as a bizarre, they didn't want to show him getting shot with the arrow. Clearly, right? right? So he doesn't shoot him in the head. I misspoke. He shoots yeah. him in the body. Yeah. It hits the paper mache skull. Yeah, it hits him in the body, but it's a weird, it's a shot of Earl on the arrow, shot of the metal head, shot of Leo looking shocked, Sh then the close-up of the metal head with the bloody, like it's almost Sam Raimi level Evil Dead style cutting of, you know, a bad horror movie, right? <laughs> well, yeah. who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe, maybe Brother Raimi was lending a little advice on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows where, it, where it was, the director was Sanger, right? Yeah, yeah, Sa yeah he's who probably- yeah, he's not he's not an established director, so maybe he was very he uh, Ted Raven was like, oh, it'd be cool if we do this. <laughs> this is what my brother would do. Yeah, <laughs> and this scene does totally mash up that sort of like when he's saying like you know just want how am I going to drink a beer if you zap the geek like really that contrast between heavy metal he talks a big game about evil 
but it's really just dudes who like fast, loud music, not actual evil. Well, and it's also Ted Raimi's also playing it as if a metalhead showed up on Saved by the Bell. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? He's like, a metalhead surfer dude. Yeah, yeah. Of. Like, it's yeah. just kind of like, yeah, get, you know, I want some beer, man. You know, like, it's just like, it's, it's, it's playing on what the stereotype in 1991 of what a metalhead is. And I'm sure Ricky Rackman was watching this going, God damn it, they don't have it right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to move us along to the Roadhouse, uh, where uh, uh, Doc Hayward, uh, Mayor Milford, and Pete Martell are the standing committee. For Miss Twin Peaks, uh, Ben addresses them and gives a flowery speech about the celebration of the totality of qualities of woman, which is basically just him wanting to get them to agree to make the topic of speeches how to save the forests. They sort of brush him off. What is he selling? They'll take it under advisement. But then the mayor says, you know, the idea has merit and the doc. Doc says he's in favor of it, so sounds like Ben will get his way. Uh, ben then asks Bobby for the dry cleaning in front of Donna and Shelly, uh, sort of emasculating him there. Donna watches Ben go, and she's still angry about the whole Ben-Eileen connection, her mom Eileen. Lana then comes up as the first contestant, kisses the mayor. Of course, everybody notices, but Bobby and Donna say uh, she'll be great. They give her encouragement. Then Nadine and Mike come in. Uh, and Nadine is going to enter Miss Twin Peaks as well. And then we have a comedic little scene between Bobby and Mike uh, where Bobby is worried about Mike for dating Nadine. And Mike sort of convinces him in as graphic as you can get on primetime TV in the 90s about why uh, dating Nadine has proved a revelation for him sexually. Yeah, so kind of a lot going on in that little scene. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and also not as much. You know, this is one of the... Uh, <laughs> I, I watched it just today uh, to prepare for the podcast, and I noticed a thing that I had never noticed is that uh, one of the background actors who is often in the double R and has a prominent shot in the next episode is uh, taking the sign-up sheets for the Twin Peaks contest, hey, the Miss Twin Peaks contest. It, it takes a village. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, a good job, Piloty. You got another thousand. scene. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is really just setting up uh, Twin Peaks. It gives us a little flavor in the in the the Bobby Shelley Ben relationship triangle there, uh, and and it I guess it further emphasizes that Mike you know really is enjoying being with Nadine. He's not been bullied into it anymore. I, I will give Bobby credit, despite the bad haircut. The reaction to Mike whispering him and the scream and the walk away to go play pinball was I, that that made me laugh out loud. Like it that that got uh, me. That, I thought that was well done. So good job, them. <laughs> yeah, made, I thought it was very funny. It, it made me forget questioning why Donna was hanging out with Shelly and Bobby, but whatever. They <laughs> Every, know each other from school. Everybody's friends. <laughs> they all used to go to school before they all dropped out. Right. Uh, yeah, I was I was enjoying watching this episode, looking for the number of mysteries that were being set up to get that air of mystery back into Twin Peaks as they moved forward. And I feel like one of the mysteries they set up is what does sexual maturity and super strength result in? We don't know. <laughs> Maybe Cooper can find out. Well, I, I did have to say, and we, we want to respect our, our, our younger listeners who are listening, so we won't go too deep or go too blue on it. But I did wonder, what could he have told Bobby that would make him react that way? Because really, it's like... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit. I wondered when I was young and I would, didn't know anything really about sex and sexuality, and it's still a bit of a mystery. Right, yeah. I, I always opinion. imagined it had something to do with uh, some kind of time... Uh, uh, time span. Oh, so like so like a sting thing, kind of like a tantric thing, right? Maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that it wasn't it wasn't in Laura's secret diary, so I don't know what it, what it could be. Yeah, and if it wasn't there, where yeah. was it? All right, let's. Uh, we have a quick transition, which 
makes me more think more and more that Sanger is behind some of these these strange effects because it's a flashlight uh, uh, on the glyph superimposed on Earl's face and some flute music, which doesn't really seem to attach itself to the previous uh, scene or the next. Uh, the next scene is at the Martells with Truman asking Catherine about Josie and Catherine sort of being frank. I think for once she's not being terribly manipulative, saying she thinks Josie survived by being whoever people wanted her to be uh, and even says, I find it hard to hate her after all of this. Truman says she was so very beautiful, which is kind of odd, and Catherine looks at him that way. Uh, Catherine then changes the subject and tries to get Harry to help with the puzzle box. Aha, the reason for the scene appears. Uh, Pete comes in raving about the contest uh, grabs the puzzle box and drops it, and it opens. Uh, they accidentally solve that section of the puzzle, but there's a smaller box with phases of the moon and astrological symbols printed on it. Uh, Pete tries to drop it again, but that doesn't work. And and this gives <laughs> us one of my favorite Piper Laurie lines of all of Twin Peaks, when after Pete drops the box and she yells, Butterfingers! <laughs> Butterfingers! There's so much... Anger and hate in her voice. I love it. It's yeah. really, it's really quite possibly one of the greatest single word exclamations by an actor, actor, actress ever. It's just like I remember watching this back in the day. This is one line when I saw this again. I was like, oh, I remember this moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I Truman's line to go back to just the Josie section for just a moment. That she was so very beautiful. Sometimes when I've watched it, it struck me as weird, and other times it struck me as he. It means something deeper, and he doesn't have the words for it. Yeah, uh, which goes back to my sort of feeling of like th there is this magic in Twin Peaks that draws people together. That you know, in Twin Peaks, the normal chemistry of love is even more powerful. And I, I, I kind of like that he can't even find words for what the connection he felt was because I don't feel like Truman is as base of a character. Just go like, yeah, but she was so hot. Like that doesn't <laughs> feel like Truman. Right. And he says she was so very beautiful, which is yeah. gives a very different feeling than man, she was hot, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think you're right. Um, and, and really, the, the rest of this scene is just kind of helping us see Truman move on into another mystery, which is what's in the puzzle box. Yeah, which was, I've always found very successful. I thought that was a really good mystery. And they did, they did, they do it enough where they don't dwell on it. It's not the main plot. In fact, this is the only moment we get, and they leave it for this episode. You know, like, yeah. again, like Tom last uh, last episode, we were talking about how the side plots are best served when they're done in little bits and drips and drabs, as opposed to more time. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know, like a a fifteen minute wine tasting scene. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, wait. Is that a preview of what's to come? I'm sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let's move on to what I think is actually one of the scenes that when I first saw it, I rolled my eyes and thought it was going to be horrible. And they execute amazingly, which is the scene of Annie and Cooper on a boat on the lake. Annie and Cooper on a boat on the lake should be an awful scene or a comic scene. And instead, you get people on a first date getting to know each other talking about their school boyfriends talking about their fears seeing Annie finally loosen up and start to talk in the very vaguest terms about why she has those scars on her wrists as it happened because of that high school boy before she went away and then they trust Cooper so they kiss some more uh, and the only thing that mars this beautiful scene is of course that <laughs> Earl is watching them from across the lake. So now here's my question and Joseph I, I challenge you in a, in, a, in a prequels love kind of level challenge <laughs> alright so if Cooper knows Wyndham Earl is lurking about 
and he knows that he's targeting people, and he knows that he's holding a grudge for Cooper stealing his wife and ultimately having her killed, why on earth would Cooper do this out in the open? And Because, be so he, because above all else, he is human. This is the great, beautiful Shakespearean tragedy of this end portion of Twin Peaks, that he should know better. I feel like it's explicit that if he was letting the purely rational side of himself rule, he would, of course, say, oh, no, I need to be extra careful because this is, in fact, what has happened before. But humans don't humans see rational things and don't make the rational choices. We make the human choices. Mm -hmm. And I think it is great to see this character that we've seen kind of be the perfect detective, the marksman, uh, the sort of bottled up Cooper, just not want to contain this, this uh, honest connection with this person. And I, I think the fact that Wyndham Earl is actually watching, it's it's. Wyndham Earl is always there in the relationship with Cooper and Annie, and it makes it this great tragedy, this great duality of Cooper can't let his guard down. He can't have love or horror will come. And, and that's the thing. As the viewer, I'm screaming at the TV, go, no, you know, because you don't want, because Tom, to your point, it is so beautiful and it is so innocent and it is so pure. And you, it, it, you just get this pit in your stomach because you know what's coming. Yeah, and that's why this scene is great, yeah. right? Yeah. They do an excellent job and then pull the rug out from under you. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I agree with you, Joseph. Love makes us do crazy things, and Cooper is not an exception to that. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, it is innocent. Their connection is innocent and pure, but this is a romantic boat ride on a lake that ends in a kiss, and the preamble to that is discussing facing your fears and attempting suicide. So it is innocent and pure. But their conversation is also one about facing fear yeah. and facing darkness. So I feel like in that moment, they think like, yeah, we're treading softly because we're both acknowledging to each other that horrible things could happen. Yeah. Well, there are two spiritual people who've seen some shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's <True>. kiss. <laughs> yeah. Make out city. I wish we could stay in that scene, but instead we must move on to the wine tasting hosted by Dick Tremaine. <laughs> uh. Uh, in the fine tradition of the weasel scene from a previous episode, it is merely a comedic a vehicle. Andy there in a suit, Lana and Lucy pouring the wine, Dick getting annoyed at Andy while trying to teach about wine, and a uh, painful attempt at comedy, really, is, is, is what this ends up being. On for, I mean, I get what they're doing. They're building, we, we had the beauty pageant, now we're having the wine tasting. They're using Dick, and they're, they're trying back to the jealousy, the triangle between Lucy, Dick, and Andy, and they're, you know, creating a wacky kind of moment. Um, but it's just, it's just painful pain, at least for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too mean into it, but I, I thought it just went on forever. And, and like the fact that a comedic point is the fact that Dick sips the wine and stains his bandage on his nose red is just I'm like, really, this is what we're doing. Well, and why is Lucy getting jealous? Why is Dick being good to Lana and, and dismissive of Lucy? It just, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I feel like this is a, one of those, uh, moments that is almost, uh, Lynchian that almost ties back to early episodes where Lynch certainly has an affinity for physical comedy. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. You know, like the, the great scene in the first episode of season two where Andy smashes himself in the face with the board and then it has the darkness because there's clearly something mentally wrong with him. Right. And he's bleeding. Like, it feels like this scene could have almost been that where, like, if it were actually directed by Lynch, like the uh, bandage in the wine would have been, like, deep and affecting. You know, yeah. so it feels like it's almost there that it's like half of a song 
Well, um, and, and maybe that's the influence of Mark Frost on the script without Lynch, you know, the, the kind of the, the two heads of a coin kind of thing where he's, he's dreaming up this moment, but, you know, but whether or not, you know, Sanger is able to execute on it the way Lynch would or not, you know, yeah. that, that becomes the problem. And what's even more what punctuates the annoyingness of the scene is that we need to get past it to get next, next to another moment of brilliance. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, back to the diner where Gordon Cole and Shelley uh, oh. are are swapping stories. And of course, uh, Cooper and Annie are there. So when Cole talks to Shelley, he talks in a normal voice. But when he turns to Cooper or Annie, uh, he talks in his Gordon Cole shouty voice. Uh, he talks about how uh, love makes the world go round. He has the waitress bring each of them three slices of pie each, which since Cooper and Annie joined after they ordered, I, d- I, I don't know how that order worked, but by golly, it did. Uh, and then Cole finally decides he has to tell Shelly how he feels. He has to say he wants to... Kill. Big Ed and Norma were my favorite couple, but I really think it's, <laughs> I think it's Gordon Cole and Shelly now. <laughs> yeah, this has always been a favorite scene. I think it succeeds in a comedy way. It ties back to the relationship with Shelly and Bobby, and the kiss is clearly consensual, which, you know, is, is nice that that is crystal clear in the way it's performed. I also like earlier in the scene at the very beginning when Gordon Cole is kind of flirting with her, that his story is one of being in the FBI and killing someone, of shooting someone. Yes. Yeah. Like, this whole episode is great. What comes before a kiss is discussions of suicide attempts and murdering people in the course of being an FBI agent. And that's what leads to kissing. It's, that's the way of things for, for <laughs> agents of the FBI, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, we go back to the Great Northern uh, to finish up the wine tasting because we were all left in suspense of how it was going, I suppose. Uh, Lucy is getting told by Dick that she's wrong, whereas Lana and even Andy are being told that uh, they are right. Uh, and so it all ends with Lucy spitting wine in Dick's face saying, I'm pregnant. I'm not supposed to drink. So dumb. I just, it's just dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't. <laughs> all right. Let me, try, let me try one more defense of this scene go on you and see it. how you like it. So I'm all about the duality of Twin Peaks. I think the only tiny little bit that you could maybe draw out of this is this is another example of duality in that Dick, uh, he is the elite. He is the person who thinks they're better than everyone. And most of our friends in Twin Peaks are just much more simple, unsophisticated people. So it does have that nice clash where the elite who is kind of in there to mock our heroes is being mocked back and ultimately loses in the scenario. Uh, I, I, I I get that intellectually, but from an <laughs> from, but from an entertainment standpoint, I mean, we didn't even have any quirky kind of you know. I would give the quirky music soundtrack to to punctuate that, you know, like it's like to Tom's point, like I think it's just missing a couple of the cues. That were, and to your point, just that were that Lynch would have made this work. And, I think okay. he would have stripped it down more, yeah. give, given it less time but more room to breathe. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like like, like and, a like a good red wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, lots of close-up shots of people spitting wine. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would have been something. I know. And ultimately, and you're right, Tom. The 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 dynamic between like does has Dick realized that he's not going to win Lucy, so now he's being antagonistic towards her. Yeah, it's like, just weird. it's just it's just weird. And the thing is, at the end, we know Lucy and Andy. It doesn't matter. Like even yeah. if it's Dick kid, Dick's kid is Lucy and Andy, right? So it's it, it, I don't know. But I do like seeing Ost- Andy in a suit. So ostensibly, we're back at the Great Northern, so we can transition to this next scene where Cooper is uh, sitting over by the fire drinking a glass of milk, uh, as he would. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Jack, 
uh, shows up and sits down, or or as Ron calls him, Billy Zane. Well, it is Billy Zane. Uh, I have a hard time calling. I have a hard time calling Billy Zane anything other than it's Billy Zane. So uh, they talk <laughs> of love and Hinduism and pain and commiserate about the various pains of being in love because they're both in love in different ways. Uh, and then Jack gets a telegram and uh, suddenly decides that he has to check out and walks off. And of course, we're sitting there like, wait, Audrey isn't back from Seattle yet. You can't you can't check out and leave yet. Who sends a telegram? <laughs> telegram it for is. Mr. Wheeler. <laughs> a simpler time in Twin Peaks. They do things the old way. Well, yeah. and, if, and if we're keep, keeping score at home, Billy Zane's costume uh, designer did not put him in a ridiculous outfit for this one little scene. Oh, no, he was Although, fairly uh, acceptable. It's, it's, it's still a turtleneck, but it's still it's, it's, it's a non-offensive outfit. So. <laughs> yeah, not as vicious as that sweater. Nothing oh, as, as vicious as oh, that, that sweater. sweater. Yeah. That sweater. I, I liked Cooper and Billy Zane having an exchange, not knowing that Billy Zane is in love with Audrey. You know what I mean? Like, because Cooper has a link to Audrey. Well, he, yeah. And yeah. It, at first I thought that was like, ooh, awkward. But then I'm yeah. like, well, no, because he shut that down with Audrey and he's got Annie now. So he'd probably be pleased. He probably would. But I like the fact that he never knew. And yeah. this is just two very handsome, handsome gentlemen <laughs> musing on being in love, which I think. Sharing a glass of milk in front of a fireplace. Yeah. And I th- I'm pretty sure yeah. John Justice Wheeler, is, he's got brandy or something like that. But it's very like it's a it's a very uh, it feels like of another time conversation. You yeah, know. and it's just another great example of uh, more well-rounded masculinity yes. than was on television at the time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very handsome, very handsome. Through the waterfall and to meatloaf night at the Haywards. Uh, well, some <laughs> of the Haywards. Uh, we've, we've, we've never seen Alicia Witt again. Where uh, are the Hayward sisters? <laughs> uh, or, or the other one, yeah. Not even, the, there's, there aren't even chairs at the table. No, no, they're <laughs> obviously uh, off on other pursuits that evening but donna eileen and doc are at the table and uh, we have an uncomfortable conversation that donna forces uh about what how she knows ben uh donna needling her mom about getting roses then announcing that she's entered the miss twin peaks contests and will use the scholarship money to study overseas burn <laughs> I mean, a couple of things about this is that I love how you know Donna, you know Donna keeps trying to resusc- you know resuscitate the Scooby Gang concept of trying to get you know solve a mystery. But in this particular mystery, she's just no subtlety whatsoever, just blunt force, just like how do you know Ben Horn? You know, like calling people out, which is a different approach for Donna, which I'm impressed by. Um, but then earlier, you know, a couple episodes ago, when we heard about the Twin Peaks pageant, the scholarship was to the local college. It was nothing about going overseas. It was the, It wasn't just free money. It was a scholarship to. It was just a burn, Ron. Yeah, I know. Still, <laughs> um, <laughs> nitpicking. But that would have been amazing though if Doc had said, "Well, you can't do that. It's only for the local." Yeah, doc. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm on the committee. You know. <laughs> you know, two thousand dollars won't get you to Europe, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, boy, I feel. Uh, you know, my last couple watchthroughs of the whole series, I feel for Donna in in both a actual in the show way and a meta way in terms of this character just kind of can't catch a break. She's in Laura's shadow. She can't solve Laura's murder. She can't hold on to James twice. Uh, and then people are just lying to her. And like this scene, it's easy to see her as just sort of like uh, petulant and weird. But man, she has been through a lot and she's just not getting anything out of it. Yeah. Well, well and again, you you know, it's how much do you want to play with what is the narrative and what is the story of the show versus what's going on behind the scenes. But she did not like her boyfriend Kyle McLaughlin being in a in a storyline with with um, Cheryl and Fenn and voiced it very publicly, and that was in the in the tabloids at the time. And so you really got to wonder, 
is she getting the short end of the stick because she kind of brought herself there, you know? Well, and careful what you wish for, or yeah. your boyfriend ends up having scenes with Heather Graham instead. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Good point, Tom. Yeah. But yeah, they, they yeah. Just, Donna just gets set, set adrift and never, I mean, Donna was one of my favorite things of season one. I thought she, I thought Lara Fon Boyle was great. Oh, yeah. I, I just discovered her. I thought it, it, she really, you know, the saddle shoes, fifties, like her and Audrey were like the, the, the examples of the small town girls in high school. Um, but it, it, this season two, it's just, she's completely, underused yeah i do like just her this sounds horribly cruel but i do like her in these later episodes just being in raw obvious pain because in terms of the cocktail of what made twin peaks that's a little bit of what disappeared after leland died of the characters were sort of uh, uh recovering and entering spring so it's nice to have a little bit of that balance of like someone is just truly in pain and hurting all right. Uh, quickly, we see the moon and Darth Sidious and an owl again. <laughs> and uh, then we're on back to the lake, uh, to the gazebo that we caught a glimpse of when Annie and Cooper were there earlier. And this is obviously Earl, having seen them have this wonderful moment, wants to spoil that location uh, by putting what we see was the heavy metal youth encased in a paper mache pawn. Uh, that is, uh, of course, because Earl has taken a pawn, and we have a, a quick Cooper Rube Goldberg moment where he ties some police tape <laughs> to a rock, gets everybody out of the way in case it's an explosive, and then uh, shoots the rock to be able to pull uh, open the thing that said uh, pull here, and it's uh, it, that's when we get to see that in inside this box was the heavy metal youth, and a note that says, next time it will be someone you know. The I, I appreciate Wyndham Earl's attention to detail and his commi- <laughs> his commitment to a comically large box. Yeah, right. Because he could have just left the pawn on the gazebo and left it at that. And, but no. and you'll notice in my description just now, yeah. I went straight to the pawn and then realized, oh right, there was a box there the whole yeah, time. Yeah, the pawn. Like, the pawn is the, this. This is a pawn statue in the shape of a person. So the box is very large. Yeah. And and so I feel like the only Wyndham Earl is not afraid to go to that extra bit of effort for a comic bit. Right. And so he is a show person. Big, yes. big, big. Consummate. And, and that justifies Cooper's very complicated method of opening the box, I feel. Because <laughs> I don't know why Cooper could just tie the police caution tape and pull it with that. Why he has to tie it to a rock and shoot the rock. Like it just didn't but have enough get tape. The yeah. <laughs> he needs to get the distance in case it's an explosive. Like, you know, I don't like the the chess piece. It's like it is it is too much and it is uh, cartoony without any sort of darkness. Not enough darkness to balance the cartooniness for me. Yeah. So so the um, the, the dead the dead stranger isn't enough darkness for you? <laughs> we don't have an emotional connection. Like we yeah. have the 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 note of it will be someone you know. But if that had been like a little side character that we had met, you know, even an unknown person from the sheriff's office, I don't know. The the heavy metal guy had been played for such comedy that that yep. in just the gooniness of the huge chess piece and how did he get it there and all that. Well, because the first murder we saw was was uh, was ghastly. You know, yeah. it was it was yes. baroque with the with the pointing and and everything. This one is a little bit clean, if you will. And and the first murder yeah. the first murder was filled with messages. 
you yeah. know, where the incision yeah. was and all this sort of stuff, and it all tied to it. But this is just random and mean. And and to, Joseph, to your point, yeah, it's like comical. And yeah, let's forget the logistics of how he got it there. It's like almost like a Doc Brown bringing the 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 time machine back to, <laughs> to Hill Valley, yeah. where it's like no one's gonna notice this large truck with this bot. Like anyway, but um, but yeah, and no, it's all it, worth it to me for the Rube Goldberg shooting. Exactly. Uh, just just to tie, tie together my my Cooper rant for this episode of your wonderful podcast. That mix of like uh, weirdness, intelligence, good with a gun, and kind. Uh, this episode was like, yeah, it's all Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. Quick thinking for yeah, Cooper. Indeed. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode, uh, but we always uh, save a little bit of time right afterwards to note things for Diane. Ron, uh, starting with you, what other things did you note about well, this my, show? My one observation is very specific, but when Cooper comes into the diner to get the donuts from the donuts and coffee from Annie, Shelly brings him the box of donuts, and it's the standard pink box of donuts, but now we have a sticker that is the font and color scheme of Dunkin' Donuts that just says Donuts Donuts. <laughs> and for a moment, it took me out of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And now, and now, now I understand that. Like, I grew up in the Northeast. Dunkin' Donuts has always been my donut of choice. You know, for like, I mean, you want a donut? Go to Dunkin' Donuts. That's pure. That's that that period. End of story. I recognize that not the whole country has had it until recently, um, and maybe it was a bit of a uh, of a novelty or whatever. But the, from a prop standpoint, it just it just took me out of the show for a moment. Yeah, there's no reason that the double R would have needed a donuts sticker. Right. In the, and in certainly the Duncan, not one that imitated Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, very odd. Very, very yeah. odd. But also of the time. It was 1991. Who knows? I just wanted to yeah. note the loud talker on the payphone in the background during Dick and Ben's scene, uh, which was <laughs> reminiscent of Johnny's moaning uh, yeah. in the scene in, in the last episode, uh, where you just kind of could barely make out that she was having a conversation. And it's the kind of thing that on a lot of shoots, they would have been like, we have to stop down until this person stops talking. But in this shoot, it's let's put a person in there yeah. uh, to to talk in the background, which I, I it lended a lovely texture to that scene. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So jo um, Joseph, did you notice anything besides your observation, your earlier observation from the Roadhouse? Or uh, yeah, my only other observation is I think this is the only time we see a totally unaccounted for waitress in the Double R. The woman uh, serving the massive quantities of pie this episode is not Shelley, Norma, not even Heidi, not even Annie, just yeah. someone else. Yes. So another she, mystery. And she's not even credited. I looked. I tried to look her up to figure out who that was, and she's not in the credits for the episode. And yeah. I had the same thought that when, when she brought over the pie, I realized, like, wait a minute, two-thirds of the wait staff are sitting in this booth. Who's, who is this? I, <laughs> yeah. For a moment, I was thought Heidi it was Norma. late again? Yeah, I, I thought it was Norma, but then they, they show her face, and it's clearly no one we've ever seen before. So. Yeah. <laughs> Think maybe that she's just a mystical creature from above the convenience store. She's she's the oh. spirit of pies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she's the pie fairy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on down to the roadhouse and check the old mailbox feedback at damnfinepodcast.com, where Dylan writes, "Hey fellas, I'm looking for information on the jazzed up version of the Twin Peaks theme you guys use for the show's open and close. Can't seem to find it info on it anywhere. I admittedly haven't tried the lodges yet, but I'm hoping you can <laughs> save me the bother and peril. Thank you in advance, and thanks for this podcast. Last time around, there wasn't any of this sense of community and shared experience, 1990 through 91. People in the office I worked at were a bunch of wet noodles and had no interest <laughs> in or comprehension of the show that I was obsessed over and still am. Pretty sure they were the ones propping up those Carol and Company ratings. Oh, man. Uh, so thank you, Dylan, for that. 
Yeah, and so our theme music, actually, and a lot of people have asked about this, and I don't know why we haven't answered it earlier or posted it. It just It's uh, oversight. We apologize. But it's actually um, it's by the band called Bookhouse, and the album is called Ghostwood, and it came out in 2013, uh, and it's actually still available on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon and that sort of thing, or you can go to their website at ghostwoodalbum.com and buy it. So please do. Please throw some money their way. Yeah. Um, but Save it's, Ghostwood to your hard drive. Exactly. But it's, <laughs> it's an entire album of jazz covers of the music from Twin Peaks, so like even more jazzy than the jazz of Twin Peaks. Um, and actually, when you know, a little, little damn fine podcast history, when Tom and I were dreaming up this podcast back in 2013... When it was initially announced they were doing this, I uh, I set, I discovered this album. I sent it to Tom. I'm like, hey Tom, we could use this for music. He's like, yeah, great. And then we forgot about it until we started was doing it the show. That so, long ago it was four years ago. I don't know if it was, yeah, it was definitely. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I think it was four years ago. Yeah. No, I remember hearing about this album coming out. So yeah, yeah. So, great record. So strongly recommend it. So go to ghostwoodalbum.com and check it out. And we thank them for not getting mad that we're using this. <laughs> <laughs> But just put it this way. Go buy lots of copies of it and tell them you heard it about it on Damn Fine Podcast. Or just buy lots of copies and don't tell them you heard about it from this podcast. <laughs> uh, folks, if you want to comment on this episode at damnfinepodcast.com, you can do so. Or send us an email like Dylan did. Feedback at damnfinepodcast.com. Joseph, a pleasure to have you along today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about Twin Peaks. I love it. Uh, if folks want to find more about your podcasts or anything else you're doing, where should they go? Uh, you can find me on all the uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, and everything is at Joseph Scrimshaw. And then my website is josephscrimshaw.com. You can find all of my podcasts and live shows there. And, and, you, and Joseph is a very funny individual. I strongly recommend you go check out his stuff. He's great. You can support us at patreon.com slash damnfinepodcast. We've got a Slack channel going for people at a certain level. So if you want to get in there and carry on conversations with other Twin Peaks fans, even if it's just exchanging coffee emojis, you can do that. <laughs> patreon.com slash damnfinepodcast. Follow us on Twitter, damnfinecast, and Facebook at facebook.com slash damnfinepodcast. Thanks for listening to us. Next time, we will revisit Season 2, Episode 20, or as it's titled, episode 27, because it's the 28th episode, if you count the pilot, The Path to the Black Lodge. Talk to you then. I'm Tom. And I'm Ron. 